Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. As we prepare to celebrate the upcoming Feast of Christ the King, the focus this week is kings. Hear about kingly prophecies from the Old Testament, the kingly mission of baptized Christians, and a listener-submitted question about whether or not the world was without an earthly king during the time of Jesus. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop. Excited for another episode, uh, this time talking about kings and kingship. Thanks for being here. You're welcome, Kyle. How are you? I'm doing great. So uh, I was trying to think of something light to open up the conversation, and I was thinking about king-sized candy bars. I well, try to avoid them. I, I know. You're, you're always going to say something healthy, but <laughs> if, if you were to pick one, what would be your favorite? Oh, of course. Hershey. Oh. <laughs> you know, I'm from <laughs> Lebanon, Pennsylvania, yeah. very close to Hershey. No, probably DeBrand's. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the biggest DeBrand chocolate would be great. You know, <laughs> I, when I think about heaven, I think then we won't have to worry about health and weight and all that, and we can have all that that that's, we want. That's right. So if your Pennsylvania friends are listening right now, are they going to be offended by that? Well, they might be, so maybe I better take that back. <laughs> you know, some of my friends back home do listen to this. Yeah. Yeah, on okay. the podcast. Well, welcome. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Coming up this Sunday, we have the solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe. We've talked about this in the past. It's, it's such a, a cool name for a feast day. We've talked about what it means. I don't know that we've talked about the history of kings, especially like in the Old Testament, and and what it means that Jesus is coming as Christ the King, and maybe how that was foreshadowed through kings. And I, I yeah. actually don't really know... Oh, that's very interesting. Go. Yeah, I don't think we have either. We did those several episodes on the prophets. Right. That would be an interesting thing to do sometime is the kings, but maybe especially, you know, Saul, David, and Solomon. I think that would be good Bible study. Okay. Would those be like the three main? Well, they were the fir- three first kings of Israel. Um, okay. There were other ones, and um, I don't know how... A, much we want to get into uh-huh. that history, but uh, you know, you read the books of Samuel, the two books of Samuel, and the two books of Kings, especially in the Old Testament. Might be interesting. Learn a little more Bible history. And yeah. Of course, Jesus descended from the line of King David, and that's really significant. And I'm sure we'll talk about that today. So, with the exception of Vatican City, I think we tend to think of this separation between church and state. You know, one way of wording it. But your government leaders and your religious leaders being two different things. So when we're talking about the first kings of Israel, is there the religious dimension and the political dimension merged together? Well, that's a very interesting question because in the Old Testament, the people were asking for a king. And that was very that was not considered a good thing because in the Israelite faith. It was very important. God is the king. So they were asking for an earthly king. Okay. That was frowned upon, you know, and um, it happened and and certainly God allowed it and um, the kings were anointed. So this whole notion of uh, 
of kingdom, when Jesus came, of course, he talked about his kingdom, but he said it is not of this world. Mm -hmm. So we know that it's not a good idea to unite the temporal and the spiritual. When that happened in the history of the church, it's been problematic. So this whole idea of, of separation between temporal secular authority and religious authority, which of course is very important in the United States from the mm -hmm. very beginning, is something that uh, the church supports. Okay. But would you say that wasn't the case for Israel? That this, oh, I'm this sorry. was yeah. a yeah. religious and political kingdom? I, I think so, in the sense of the kings of Israel certainly had control over worship uh -huh. and cult. There were sometimes conflicts between them and the priests, certainly between them and the prophets, huh. that's always been kind of problematic. So do we look at this within the context of the Feast of Christ the King? I, I admit I didn't even look at the readings. I, no, the not mass. really. I mean, I think really we focus on this feast on the kingship of Christ. So, okay. And of course, the title is King of the Universe. Uh -huh. And I think the important thing here is that, you know, in a sense, when this feast was created, I think it was back in the 1920s, there were usurpations or attempted infringements on the freedom of the church or persecution of the church. And I think this was an important thing to, to highlight. And that's happened throughout history where we see, even back in the Middle Ages, lay investiture when the kings or the rulers uh, were appointing bishops, hmm. you know, for example. So really meddling in ecclesiastical affairs. But then we also see the opposite problem when church leaders have meddled in temporal affairs in a way that was inappropriate. Hmm. The previous comment almost sounds like what's happening in China or what has happened in China in the past with the political leaders appointing bishops. Yeah, I mean, that's still an ongoing issue. Yeah. Um, now they reach this accord where both have to agree, right. the Pope and, and the uh, Chinese uh, authorities. But that is not ideal by any means, in a sense that um, really they have no right to interfere. Mm. They should be respecting the freedom of the church. Right. And yeah, this is an ongoing problem even up until now, 2021. Well, getting back to the Old Testament kings, like you said, this could be a, a series that we do, and uh, I, I think I would enjoy that. But maybe, is there anything that we can maybe a summary or uh, some something that we can take away or anything that this is foreshadowing with the kingship of Jesus? I think so. I mean, in, in the Jewish world at that time, there was the expectation of a Messiah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the Messiah in the Old Testament refers really to three different figures in the life of the people of Israel. Early on, the Messiah is considered the priest, Mm -hmm. uh, will be a priest. And then in the historical books, I mentioned the books of Samuel, books of Kings, the Messiah is the king. When the word Messiah appears in, in the book of Psalms, which is quite often, huh. it refers almost always to a king, that the Messiah is a king. These are the royal Psalms. They're longing, Israel's longing for a righteous king who will rule according to God's will, a king who will bring justice and peace. That comes up a lot in the Psalms. 
And it's interesting, both priests and kings were anointed with oil when they were consecrated, mm-hmm. and they became leaders. The priest was a leader in the temple, and the king was a leader in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. But then there's a third figure, also referred to as a Messiah, but who received a different kind of anointing, not with oil, but an anointing with the Holy Spirit. That's the, the prophet. Okay. Okay. So we have priests, kings, and prophets. And of course, one prophet who was anointed, there was one prophet anointed with oil, just in case someone's listening say, well, what about Elisha? Uh-huh. Elisha was anointed, a prophet anointed with oil, but normally they were not. Huh. Um, but then when you get to the later books of the Old Testament, especially the book of Daniel, and if you remember, we had a couple episodes on the book of Daniel, mm-hmm. the word Messiah began to be referred to a savior mm-hmm. at the end of time, a savior. So this uh, figure of the Messiah as an end-of-time Savior, bringing peace and happiness, was pretty much a late development in Judaism. But in any event, that whole idea of of the uh, Messiah as a king is something quite prominent. We speak of it technically as royal messianism, okay, the expectation of a Messiah king. There's also priestly messianism, the expectation of a Messiah priest. Hmm. But we're talking here today about kingship. So they were awaiting a new David who would shepherd the people. This image of a shepherd, too, is also seen in the prophets, this um, a shepherd who will lead God's people, you know, and basically the shepherd being God himself, Mm -hmm. and then the Messiah who just happened to be the son of God. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so in the New Testament, Jesus really corresponds to this hope for a Davidic king, an anointed one who brought about the long-awaited kingdom. Thing is, it wasn't what they expected. Right. Because his throne was the cross. His crown was the crown of thorns. He also is the new prophet, Of course, he is the son of God, so he is certainly the spokesman for God. Hmm. And he is the priest who made the offering uh, sacrifice, but again, not what they expected. He offered his own life. So we can say that this hope for a Messiah who would rule over his people would be of the line of King David he would be a king. The readings for the Sunday when we celebrate the solemnity of Christ the King kind of refer to these various readings that will refer, for example, to to Christ as a, as the um, the foreshadowed king. Mm-hmm. Did you see the reading for this Sunday? No, I did not. Okay, it's from the Book of Daniel. By the way, we're the this is the last Sunday of the liturgical year. Oh, that's right. You know, and we've been hearing, reading the Gospel of Mark throughout this year. So next year it will be Luke. But in any event, the first reading is from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. So I'll, I'll read that because this gets at another aspect of uh, the kingship. As the visions during the night continued, this is Daniel speaking. Mm-hmm. I saw one like a son of man coming. 
on the clouds of heaven. When he reached the Ancient One and was presented before him, the one like a son of man received dominion, glory, and kingship. All peoples, nations, and languages serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not be taken away. His kingship shall not be destroyed. I think it's pretty obvious why we have this uh, reading on the Feast of Christ the King. But notice the figure is son of man. The one who, like a son of man, who comes with the clouds of heaven and who is given dominion, glory, and kingship. So he comes with the clouds of heaven, and yet he shares the human condition, the dignity of the Son of Man. He really stands for the people of the saints of the Most High. If we would continue reading chapter 7, it says that this figure stands for the people of the saints of the Most High. That is the faithful of Israel. But he's also an individual, and as insofar as he's given a kingdom, then he is a king, okay? Mm-hmm. So what we have here is an individual who represents the people. In the time of Christ, the Son of Man was interpreted as being the Messiah, a real person. And it was became linked to the sufferings of the Messiah and to his resurrection from the dead. But who linked them? It was Jesus himself, because he applied the oracles or the songs in the book of the prophet Isaiah about the suffering servant. He applied them to himself. He talked about the the passion of the Son of Man that he predicted that Jesus himself foretold his mm-hmm. passion, his suffering, and his death, and referred there to the Son of Man will be handed over will be killed, et cetera, and will rise from the dead. Uh So he, Jesus himself, applied that title, Son of Man. He used it a lot for himself, which conjures up this idea from the book of the prophet Daniel, the Son of Man who came on the clouds of heaven. Yeah. Okay, but Jesus is the one who linked that kind of triumphant figure to the suffering servant, and he really is both. Hmm. So he did come down from heaven like the Son of Man in Daniel, and he was the suffering servant in his mission that redeemed us. Remember, he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. Right. So that title of Jesus as Son of Man is one that um, you know Jesus applied, used for himself often. He didn't use the title Son of God for himself. He used the title Son of Man. So going back to something that you said earlier about the Messiah being the priests and the prophets and the kings, these are all things that we hear about our baptism, that we're baptized as priests, prophets, and kings. So maybe just since kind of focusing on Christ the King, what does it mean for us to be baptized as kings if... Jesus is Christ, the king of the universe. Right. How are we sharing in his kingship or the royalty that is Christ, the king? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Christ, Jesus is priest, prophet, and king. Okay, so that's 
very clear. And the church, which is the body of Christ, we're incorporated by baptism into the church and therefore share in the priesthood of Christ and in his prophetic and kingly mission, the royal mission. So we can talk about how, as baptized Christians, we share in this triple office of Christ, priest, prophet, and king, uh-huh. as a result of our baptism. The Second Vatican Council teaches about this. We can also look at how priests, ordained priests, are priests, prophets, and kings. So, mm-hmm. But Christ himself is the priest, prophet, and king. But we share in his mission. I don't know that this is preached a lot about, but it is something that is good to think about and because we're called to live that mission. And when we talk about the, the kingly mission or the royal mission that we have in being conformed to Christ through our baptism, it's important to see, well, what kind of, of kingly mission did Jesus have? Well, it was precisely service. You know, I came not to be served, but to serve. Mm-hmm. So that's the kingly office. That's the kingly mission that we have, the mission to serve. One of the things is to overcome the reign of sin in ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's part of, of living our kingly mission, to have domination over sin in our lives. Mm-hmm. In other words, to... Um, to overcome it with the help of God's grace. The other thing would be serving Christ humbly and serving others, serving really, serving Jesus in others. To serve is to reign. That's what Jesus kind of, you know, example teaches us. To serve is to reign. And of course, the Lord desires that his kingdom be spread throughout the world. And that's by us by the faithful, by the baptized. We hear in the, in the preface of the Feast of Christ the King, it says the kingdom of truth and life, the kingdom of holiness and grace, the kingdom of justice, love, and peace. I love that part of the preface on the solemnity of Christ the King. And it's our mission as his disciples to go forth and proclaim his kingdom, spread his kingdom. And that means our commitment to those things, to truth, to life, to justice, to love, to peace, to live in holiness and grace. That's his kingdom. And serving Christ the King, we are to spread his kingdom. All right. Well, Good for us to reflect on this. And again, maybe we can come back to this in a little bit and do a reflection on the Old Testament kings. I think that'd be fascinating. Anything else that we should think about or prepare for? I, I think the whole idea of that kingship being one of service is a good reminder for us. Because when I think of kings, I think of ruling and power. I don't think of service, but that's exactly what Christ did and the example that right. he set for us. Exactly. I can think of baptized Christians who, who are parents. Now, they would have authority in the home, mm. authority over their children. But again, how is that authority exercised? 
it's through primarily through love, which includes discipline too. Mm. So there is that idea of ruling, so to speak, but it's it's how. So then is the kingdom of God, is it different today than at the end of time? Well, the kingdom has come. It was inaugurated by Christ. His death and wow. resurrection is what began the kingdom. But it's not really perfected until heaven, okay. okay, until the end of the world. Christ's kingdom will be fulfilled gradually and only totally fulfilled by God when he is victorious over the final unleashing of evil huh. that will cause his bride to come down from heaven. That's at the last judgment. That's why we still, we always pray, thy kingdom come. Mm. Yes, it's right. here, but it's not yet fulfilled. It's not yet perfect. It's part of our mission, as I said, is to extend his kingdom. Mm -hmm. When we say thy kingdom come, it refers to the kingdom that lies ahead of us. It has been coming. It began, you know, with Jesus. Kingdom will come in glory when Christ hands it over to the Father. So when we say thy kingdom come, primarily we're referring to the final coming hmm. of the kingdom of God when Christ returns. But we are to be committed even now in the present world to cooperate with the coming of the kingdom. And that's a work of the Holy Spirit who completes Christ's work on earth and brings us the fullness of grace. St. Paul wrote to the Romans, the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we have to work for the growth of the kingdom of God. That's part of our mission. That's part of our royal mission, right. our kingly mission yeah. as baptized Christians. I like it. All right. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can call or text the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And we have a listener submitted question that's quite the doozy. Was the world without an earthly king during the ministry of Jesus... That's coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman. Here with our bishop, I'll be asking a question submitted by a listener, Jason Wardwell. He writes, this is a little bit of a long question, but I think it's very interesting. First, Christ was born under the earthly reign of Augustus, who was the first emperor of a newly created Roman Empire. The previous structure, the Roman Republic, stood for 500 years, ending about 40 BC when Julius Caesar was killed. So Christ came to the earth during the reign of the first emperor of the new Roman Empire, which lasted another 500 years. Second, as we know, Jesus' public life death and resurrection, the most important years of his life occurred between 30 and 33 AD. 
During these years, if my history is correct, Tiberius was emperor of Rome. In one of the chapters of the constant political and power struggles in ancient Rome, Tiberius was in fear of being killed and fled to the island of Capri, exiling himself there in 27 AD. He died on Capri in 37 AD, never to return to Rome. So, during Christ's life on earth, the ruler of the world's most powerful empire was in self-exile, hiding in fear of his life on an island. I'm curious if there is any significance to either of these. Of course, the Roman Empire was only of this world, so it certainly apples and oranges as we think about Christ in the heavenly kingdom. However, Rome was the dominant power on the earth at the time of Christ's earthly life. I've been through the entire catechism of the Catholic Church, and I don't recall anything that the church teaches in regard to this, but I was curious if there have been any theologians who have noticed and commented on this, or if you could possibly share your thoughts. Thanks, Bishop, for all you do for our diocese. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Jason. That's a very interesting question. (laughs) Um, I think it's... um, you know, in God's providence, I, I mean, it makes me think, in God's providence, why did he send his son at that particular time and in that place? We can only speculate about that. I haven't really read anyone. Uh, you asked if I know of anyone who's a theologian or teacher who have commented on this, and to be honest, I don't know. I don't remember any either or any teaching of the church. I kind of vaguely think, you know, the the idea of the Pax Romana under Augustus, that, you know, the Roman peace, one of the things that comes to mind is not just the power of Rome, but how it had spread so wide and far all through Europe and into Africa and into the Middle East, etc. Keeping in mind the people of uh, Judea, and Israel, they were under the Roman Empire, but they still had their own king, King Herod, but he was more like a puppet. Remember, Pontius Pilate was the the governor but or mm-hmm. the procurator, and Herod was kind of a puppet. But in a sense, you know, there were these earthly rulers, and he's correct, Augustus was the emperor at the time that Jesus was born. And I think it was, I forget the year, I pretty much think it was the time Jesus was probably a teenager that Tiberius, that Augustus died and Tiberius succeeded him as the Roman emperor. There's a lot of things written about Tiberius, good and bad, but it's correct. He ended up on the island of Capri and that's where he died. spent some years there, but we won't get into the life of the emperor Tiberius, although I do enjoy history. <laughs> but there's a lot of conflicting historical opinions about Tiberius. Okay. But one thing I think one could speculate about is the system of roads and all the developments that Rome was famous for in the Roman Empire did make it easier for Christianity to spread. Mm. You know, the developments under the Romans were really impressive, especially roads and mm-hmm even ships. And maybe that is something, you know, how would Christianity have spread so quickly if that wasn't in place? Uh-huh. You know, I mean, those are just things you can think about that that might have been timely, but uh, who knows? And and remember, the Roman emperors were considered as God, almost as gods, mm. you know, and even worshipped in statues, etc. And certainly we see that with Augustus, Caesar, 
And in a sense that he used the name Savior as well. So um, there are certain parallels there. And yet Jesus is the true Savior of the world. He is, you know, the the true king of the universe and the true God. But some of these attributes were falsely applied to to these human emperors Mm -hmm. like Augustus and Tiberius. All right. Well, I, fascinating question, and I appreciate you reflecting on it a little bit. And, and I feel like it was good timing to fit in with our conversation about Christ the King. So thank you, Jason, for submitting that. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop, for another great episode. Before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.